Hi, everybody. This is Steve Rubin, and welcome to Saturday Night the Movies, the podcast where we contemplate, sometimes criticize, and celebrate classic movies, cult movies, current movies, anything movie. And tonight, I'm very privileged to say that our guest is an old friend, uh, fellow Twilight Zone writer. We've, we're both the authors of books on the zone. I, uh, actually, Nicholas Parisi is the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. He serves as president of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charity that is dedicated to preserving and promoting Serling's legacy. Nick is, Nick is also an accomplished musician and vocalist. His former band, uh, how do you pronounce it, Nick? Ariok. Ariok. <laughs> Close enough, yep. Released a CD with the Serling inspired title between light and shadow on retrospect records in 2010 he's currently writing a musical inspired by rod Serling's work we definitely got to talk about that and nick and i met about three years ago when i was invited to a symposium at binghamton on the twilight zone i had just written the twilight zone encyclopedia and uh, nick and i were both guests and i had a great time there uh i spent two days just hanging with Twilight Zone people. And tonight, uh, we're not really going to talk about the series because this is a movie podcast. We're going to talk about Rod Serling on the big screen. And when Nick told me he'd like to talk about the movie world of Rod Serling, I was delighted because you don't hear much about Rod's big screen work, aside from obviously the Planet of the Apes and Seven Days in May. Uh, but I found it interesting that he wanted to talk about big screen Rod. But before we get into that uh, work that Rod did on many levels, I, Nick, let, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, when did you first get interested in the Twilight Zone? You're much too young to have been around when the first, uh, first shows were aired. Uh, when, what was your introduction to the Twilight Zone? Yeah, well, I, I became in, you know interested in the Twilight Zone when I was a kid, when I was maybe 10 years old. Uh, I'm a Long Island boy, and uh, the Twilight Zone would air on WPIX in New York, and it would air late at night, and I mean we were early in the morning, usually 1 o'clock, 1 a.m., and uh, when I was 10, 11 years old, I would stay up. I would stay up to watch it. I, there was Twi uh, Star Trek was on before it, and I would watch you know Star Trek, and Twilight Zone was right afterward, and I would do my best to stay up for it, and and really, just from the time first time I saw the show, it just mesmerized me. I was, um, you know, I was a kid, but but uh, just something about uh, about Rod Serling, about his presence, about the way his characters spoke, the language they used, it all just it all just pulled me in, and I just became a fanatic for the show right you know right off the bat. And what really happened was, you know, when I was about twelve years old, Mark Zickrey's Twilight Zone Companion came out, and that just blew my fandom quotient out of the water you know it just just uh you know made everything you know uh turn me into an uber fan you know so so that just kind of it's uh, just kind of snowballed from from that point forward it's funny because uh when zikri's book came out uh the idea that there were 156 episodes to me was amazing because I'd probably seen the same 35 episodes over and over for so many years. I, I thought there were just 35 episodes. And when I <laughs> realized there were 156 episodes, I said, oh my God. I mean, and of course, 
Zakri did a great service to all of us for pro providing the, it all it, all there for us. And uh, he's such a Twilight Zone fan. Do you remember the first Twilight Zone episode you ever watched? I do not. And it's uh, funny you ask, because from my experience, most people do remember. Most Twilight Zone fans do remember the first episode that they saw. But for the life of me, I cannot remember the first one. I could probably narrow it down to a handful. Um, I think the Hitchhiker was certainly one of the first ones I saw, you know, with, uh, with, um, you know, with the, the hitchhiker on the side of the road, it turns out to be, you know, death leading the woman to which who didn't realize she was dead. Uh, that was one of the first ones I saw, um, stop over in a quiet place, which Rod Serling did not write, which is about, um, a, a married couple that find themselves in a town with no people and, you know, it's a, it's a typical Twilight Zone-esque, you know, setting. And it turns out they're in a dollhouse on another planet. Um, that was one of them, but but no, I cannot pinpoint what which one it uh, it exactly was. Mine was a traumatic one because I did watch one zone back in the day that the show debuted. I wandered into the living room. I think I was eight or nine, and in those days I was just watching cartoons and an occasional western. I wasn't into drama television, and they the silence was. On. My parents are watching an episode where, as you know somebody bets this motor mouth that he can't talk for a year. I sat there for about five minutes and the concept of, for a nine-year-old of not being able to speak <laughs> here was so terrifying. I left the room. I said, this is too weird for me. I'm gone. And I never came back until reruns later on. Uh, <laughs> Rob, you, know, Rob, you know, what's funny is, is that, you know, people talk all the time about, you know, what's the scariest episode of the Twilight Zone and how scared they were when they were a kid and everything. And, and I got to tell you, I, I really was never all that frightened by the Twilight Zone, by the show itself. But what did get me always was the was the intro music, the intro to the Twilight Zone, whatever season it may have been the, with the eyeball or the door or whatever it may have been. The very, you know, the first season, I was always totally creeped out by the by the intro to the Twilight Zone. So when I was like 10 years old, I would actually turn off the TV for about 34, 30 or 45 seconds until that intro was over and then turn it back on so I could watch the show. <laughs> but I was, yeah, I was always creeped out by the intro. So the Twilight Zone obviously is the cornerstone of Rod's uh, output. But as you know, he was a, a, a voracious writer and, and would often write three or four things at once. He came out of live television. I guess technically, the first movie-length projects he wrote were live television uh, uh, dramas, and but they weren't feature-length. They weren't usually more than an hour, were they? Or did they go over? Um... Well, when he first when he started writing for Playhouse ninety, uh, Playhouse ninety was a ninety-minute live you know live performance. Uh, so minus commercials, it was about seventy-eight minutes, I think. So those were pretty close to feature length. And he wrote 10 Playhouse 90s in the span of less than three years. So, you know, in my book, I, I do make that point that, you know, it, it was the equivalent of writing 10 feature length screenplays in, the, you know, less than three years. And, and, and those Playhouse 90s are almost all of them are great. I mean, really, really good stuff. It's interesting because um, I, I don't, I don't, was Patterns a Playhouse 90 or was that pre-Playhouse 90? That was pre, Patterns was Craft Theater. And that was a 60 minute, uh, um, 60 minute uh, teleplay. But um, he wrote, Rod wrote the first episode of Playhouse 90, which was an adaptation of a novel 
uh, called Forbidden Area by Pat Frank, which is actually a science fiction novel and, and which doesn't, which kind of gets overlooked sometimes when you think of uh, pre-Twilight's on science fiction, but Rod, Rod wrote that. And then the next week he wrote Requiem for Heavyweight, which was the one that really put him on the map you know, for good, uh, as, as far as being the most prestigious writer in, in, in television. And so those were, yeah, those were 90 minutes. Right. And then Requiem uh, became a feature film with, um, with Anthony Quinn, I believe. Correct. Yes. And now, so, did, so did Patterns. He, he, he adapted Patterns into a feature film as well as Requiem. You know, there in reading a lot about Rod and, and certainly working on my encyclopedia, you hear about um, Hollywood reaching out to him. And I know he would come out to Hollywood at times to do some feature film work. He did a Western. Wasn't the Western back in the saddle one of his first? Uh, saddle the Wind. Yeah, that was that was one. Yeah, oh. among his first three for sure. It was 1956, I believe, or maybe 57. Yeah. And it's not a bad movie. It's, uh, you know, that's one of the ones that Rod always kidded about. He said, you know, his, his famous line about that movie was, I, I gave better dialogue to the horses than I did to the actors. But um, that was typical Rod being hard on himself. If you watch that movie now, it's a perfectly fine, entertaining Western. There's no, nothing offensive about it. It's, it's a decent movie. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but it's, it's not a bad movie by any, any stretch. Why do you think it was challenging for Rod Serling to, at least in the beginning of his career, to get a lot of feature work. Because obviously he was being multiple Emmy or Emmy winning, and he was one of the highest profile writers around, but his early product was a little stop and start. Why do you think? Well, he did get, he did get a lot of offers. I mean, it, you know, as mentioned, when after Patterns aired in, in January of 55, uh, and made him really made Rod Serling a star when after Patterns uh, aired, and he got the offer to write the feature like screenplay for Patterns right away, and that did lead into a lot of feature film um, offers at least. And he he wrote a, a bunch of things that were not produced. I mean, he he um, you know he worked on. He worked on a lot of things that um, he, he struggled with, and you know, for you know, there was one there was one screenplay he wrote that was ultimately uh, produced on, with a different writer, and he said, "I turned in a draft that was 400 pages long and would have ran for nine hours on the screen." You know, he just he just didn't have a feel for the format yet in terms of that length, even though he and he hadn't really written for for Playhouse 90 at that point. Really, Pat, you know, Patterns was 60 minutes, and then you know, he hadn't quite gotten to the 90 minute length so he was working his way towards that and he just didn't quite have a grasp of of the format so so yeah his 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 early work you'll see a lot of stuff that he worked on that was not ultimately not produced or ultimately given to other writers and was produced with their their credit but once he did get you know a feel for it um he you know he released he he wrote some pretty good feature films and beginning really well beginning with patterns i mean that was his first one and luckily he was just able to expand his 60 minute you know, uh, screen uh, teleplay into a feature into feature length, and and patterns is a very good movie. And then you know, by, by the time Requiem for Heavyweight came around, he had a, a much better grasp on it, and um, and that's a very good film also. Well, you know, I know we can get into this a little bit, and I, I, I my my thought about his output <clears throat> is a bit controversial. I've always felt that Rod was a very he was a brilliant dramatist especially with dialogue he seemed to be able to capture 
the voice of the everyday man so well. And obviously that was perfectly captured in the Twilight Zone. But I'm wonder, I've always wondered whether the movies much more of a visual medium, less a dialogue medium. I'm just, I've always often wondered that if Rod's style by the mid sixties was considered a little old fashioned in that it was dialogue heavy drama, which we certainly appreciated but my sense was that the, the visual meaning at visual medium aspect of movie making was not as strong suit. I'm curious what you think of that. I think that's fair. And I think um, that certainly ha that case has been made. And I, I think um, that is part of the reason why he had some trouble early on anyway. Um, yes, he was very dialogue heavy and some of his stuff could come across as very talky. Um, and some of his early, yeah, very early screenplays that weren't produced, they, they, you, they have that feel there. They are very dialogue heavy and very talky, but, um, but, you know, just going through them, through the, the, the features that were produced, you know, if you get to like, say seven days of May, we talk about those, you could see that there are, there are scenes in that where he did take the step back and let the visual tell the story. Um, now John, John Frankenheimer directed that, so I'm sure he had a, you know, a big, a big hand in that, but, but I think he did realize that that was a, maybe a weakness that he needed to overcome. And, and I think he, he did overcome it at least in terms of uh, seven, when Seven Days of May uh, came out, and that, you know, because you, you could see that that on the screen. Well, you're talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, a compelling story based on a novel that he obviously dramatized. It seemed to be the perfect vehicle for his kind of dramatic uh, intensity. Now, I have not read the Fletcher Knebel novel. Uh, have you actually read the original? No, I have not actually, no. Uh, so neither of us are experts on that book. Uh, but the thing is about, well, you know, that's big Hollywood filmmaking, very star driven. You've got Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Frederick March, Ava Gardner. I mean, this, uh, this movie, and it's interesting, it was released in 1964, which is the same year that both Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove uh, were released. So it was a year for paranoid thrillers uh, about the potential uh, demise of the United States. Um, obviously, Rod was perfectly uh, chosen for that kind of role because he was that he was very concerned about the future of the United States, especially nuclear war. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, this was, yeah, you're right. This was totally in his wheelhouse, um, this, this subject matter, for sure. And of course, John Frankenheimer went on to do The Manchurian Candidate. So, so uh, he, he basically almost had a sequel to, to, to Seven Days in May. Um, but yeah, so this, yeah, this was right in Serling's wheelhouse in terms of his, his sensibilities, his concerns, everything that he, you know, that he worried about, about, uh, about America, about the idea of a, you know, a demagogue, uh, you know, uh, gaining this kind of power to be able to take over. You know, imagine, imagine it happening in real life. Who could imagine such a thing? Yeah, um, but, but uh, yeah, this this was something that Rod was concerned about, and and yeah, and nuclear. Listen, nuclear war was something that you know Rod addressed in the Twilight Zone over and over again. Um, you know, so obviously that was a, a huge concern of his as well. He was traumatized by war. I mean, uh, can you talk a little bit about what happened to him in World War II? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, World War II is is the, you know the, the defining you know event in Rod Serling's life and in, in in his in his career and his and his life. You know, it's just uh, he he joined the army the day after high school graduation. 
uh, he was gung ho. He he wanted to he wanted to do his part. He was, um, you know, he he's, he was Jewish. Um, he saw what was going on. He wanted to fight Nazis, and uh, you know, he, he he wanted to do his part. So he joined, and he had this idea that he wanted to be a paratrooper. That was uh, wherever he got that idea, he he got it, and he wanted to be a paratrooper, and he and he and he got it. He became uh, he was assigned to the 11th Airborne, uh, 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment, and. Unfortunately for Rod, you know, the, you know, he may have had this, you know, this kind of romantic idea about jumping out of airplanes, but um, the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment was used as an infantry. They were the first, you know, assignment they had. They were, they were assigned to, to fight in the Philippines. And, you know, he went to New Guinea and, and, and trained in the jungles of New Guinea for six months before they went to, uh, to Leyte in the, you know, the Philippine Islands. And he saw some heavy, heavy combat uh, on in in the Philippines, and it scarred him for the rest of his life. He came back from the war, certainly with PTSD. We would, they didn't call it call it that uh, back then, but certainly with PTSD, he had a you know a fairly significant injury to his right to his uh, one of his knees. He had you know shrapnel in his knee. He had a, a wrist injury, and he was um, you know more you know more than that it was really a psychological scarring. He was uh, when he first got back, he was like like almost every other combat veteran who comes back, they, he had to try to readjust to civilian life and try to get, you know, those, get those thoughts out of his head. And it took a while. And luckily for him, he, he did get past it and he went to school. He went to, he went to school at Antioch University in, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he was able to kind of, you know, write his way through it. I mean, he admitted that, the, you know, he started writing as a form of therapy to get those, to get those feelings out of his gut and onto the page. And a lot of the stuff he wrote early on, including stuff he wrote when he was in college, is war related. It's it's and it's 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 semi autobiographical. It's almost not even you can't even call it semi autobiographical. It is autobiographical. Um, uh, you know the stuff that he wrote about the war early on. So that that was an explicit explicit reason he started writing was just to to get through some of that trauma. Well, he goes from um, you know seven days of May was a big hit. Uh, for, for good reason. It's, it's uh, Frankenheimer directed it beautifully and uh, it plays and plays and plays. It's one of the movies I will constantly go back to because even listening to the dialogue, it's so crisp. Um, two years later, and it's interesting because uh, I remember seeing this movie Assault on a Queen, which was a caper movie you know, I think it's one of those movies that gets a, a few brickbats here and there. But as a 15-year-old seeing this at the a theater in Los Angeles, I had a lot of fun. Uh, uh, can you tell the people who've never heard of this movie what it actually, the Assault of the Queen is? Well, well, I'll, well, I'll start by saying that I'm glad you saw it when you were 15 because because I that this one I would have to agree with Rod that I think this is a real turkey. I mean, I think Assault on the Queen is... <laughs> just horrible <laughs> i think it's really bad but frank sinatra pretty much picked rod serling to write this the screenplay he 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 asked rod serling to write this and and um it's a yeah it's a caper picture about uh you know uh you know about the um takeover of a of a of a ship at sea uh you know with the you know uh, uh, I don't even remember if it was if it was gold or I mean that was you know transporting gold or whatever it may have been, um, or I'm sorry that was you know that was sunken that, that was a sunken ship that they, that they were going for. But it's um, I don't I don't think anything really works and it works in this movie. Um, it's uh, yeah it's, oh, it's pretty. Come, pretty on, come on, some fun stuff. You first of all you got Verna Lisi, 
I was gonna, I was gonna say she's the only. <laughs> if you can watch it, you watch it on mute. You can watch it on mute. Just, just watch for an Elise and then it's okay. But otherwise, I, I wouldn't. Oh, recommend. <laughs> for for the for the for the viewers, I'll, I'll give it a little bit more play here. It, uh, Frank Sinatra is basically a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, he's kind of a, a mercenary slash uh, whatever, and he's approached by an old friend to raise a submarine, an, an old German U-boat, uh, and yeah, they're yeah. going play pirate and uh, basically hold up the Queen Mary at sea, which actually is kind of almost like an Ocean's Eleven type of caper. And uh, it's an interesting band. Uh, Sinatra brought back his buddy Richard Conti and they had just been, they, six years earlier, they had been in Ocean's Eleven together. And then uh, Tony Franciosa, who was an up and coming Italian actor, uh, or an Italian American actor, uh, he plays uh, the, um, the money behind the caper, and he's uh, his girlfriend is Verna Lisi, who Frank Sinatra has an eye on. So there's already a little, you know, romantic subterfuge there. And uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Nelson Riddle did the music. And me being a great film music buff, I thought the score for Assault on a Queen uh, it was pretty good. But I, I, you are in the majority, though. Most people think it's a dog. <laughs> It's it's such a dog I couldn't even remember the plot, <laughs> but, but it's, has, it has been a while since I saw it though. Well, it has one of the great famous lines that Rod would probably like to forget, and forgive me, Rod, but there's a moment where Frank Sinatra is all hot under the collar about Verna Lisi, and he literally says, "We're she's so deep in my gut, we breathe together." <laughs> yep yeah rod did not particularly like that line he he, uh, he, uh, he said he was on a plane once and that and that was the movie that was the in-flight in movie and and he heard people groaning when they heard that line and he's you know kind of sank down in his seat a little bit you know but uh yeah yeah that was, that's there's probably a good time to look out the window and maybe see something on the wing yeah yeah that would be better <laughs> <laughs> so uh he makes up for it considerably two years later uh, when he is assigned the task of dramatizing French author Pierre Boulle's novel, Planet of the Apes. And again, I think the material was perfectly matched to Rod. It's, a, it's science fiction. It involves a culture clash, in this case, the classic culture of man versus ape. Do you know anything about how he got that uh, assignment? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I dedicate a chapter in my book to, to the to the history of Planet of, of Serling's history with Planet of the Apes. And it began with uh, the, the initial company that had the rights to do a Planet of the Apes movie was was an outfit called King Brothers, King Brothers Productions. And they just sent Rod the book. They just and, and the book had just come out. And so I don't know. You know, I, I guess they had gotten a galley and said, yeah, let's you know, I've got, got an option on it and sent Rod the book. And. Uh, asked him if he'd like to do it, and Rod said, "Yeah, absolutely." He got to work on it immediately, and he wrote a couple of a couple of drafts that may not even have even been complete at that point. And then King Brothers either lost their option or whatever it may have been, and Arthur Jacobs uh, got the property, and he continued with Serling. He he kind of rehired Serling to to to, to write this to write the screenplay. So. So he continued with Arthur Jacobs. And actually, Sterling was writing another movie for Arthur Jacobs at the same time that was never produced. And I, I, the title of that one escapes me. But, um, but so he, you know, he's working with Arthur Jacobs. And, and he wrote, Sterling wrote, you know, the, the 
the number of drafts that Sterling wrote of Planet of the Apes is a, is a little screwy because, I mean, there is one interview where Sterling says he wrote three complete drafts of the screenplay and another interview where he says he wrote 40 drafts. I mean, so that's a, tri- a gigantic discrepancy, you know, difference between the two. And what it is, I think, is, is there's a difference between drafts and revisions. And, and what I found was he wrote, um, he wrote three really complete drafts, and then there were dozens of revisions in between each one. Um, and what ended up happening was, you know, after a couple of years on the project and, and writing all these different drafts of it, nobody wanted to produce that movie. Everybody was terrified that that movie was not going to work, that there was no way they were going to be able to make the apes believable. And this was going to be a money pit that they were going to, you know, they're going to, you know, it was going to be a bomb and, and, uh, nobody was, you know, they couldn't get a director and, you know, the actors came and went, I mean, Paul Newman was attached to it at one point and, and, you know, uh, and he left and, and so, so one of the things that Arthur Jacobs uh, thought of to do to, to, to make it a little more palatable was to reduce the budget. And Rod's version was a little closer to the novel than the, than the finished product is. And Rod's version was set in a modern society. It was not necessarily futuristic, but it was set in a, in a society where the apes wore clothes. I mean, they wore, they wore, you know, they wore suits, they wore hats, they, you know, they went to work, they, you know, they drove cars, they were seen in, you know, driving Jeeps, they weren't on horseback, you know, so, so Arthur Jacobs said, maybe if we take this setting and make it a pre-industrial setting, we can cut the budget and, uh, you know, make it a little more palatable for the studios. And Rod said, you know what? He was. He, he said. He admitted he was just written out on it. He he did not have the energy to go back and, and basically rewrite the entire thing in a completely different setting. So, so um, Arthur Jacobs hired Michael Wilson, who had wrote, written Bridge on the River Kwai, and and Wilson came in and rewrote the entire screenplay. But he basically kept the same exact structure that Rod Serling had come up with from the novel. He, Rod adapted the novel and gave it the structure of a, that the film would have in terms of scene, you know, the scene structure and, you know, uh, dramatic points, you know, what, what would happen when. But Michael Wilson basically rewrote all of the dialogue. And uh, they end up sharing screen credit. It was written by Rod Serling and Michael Wilson, which is the way it should have been. To your knowledge, was Rod pleased with the final work? Yes, I, I think he was very pleased. Yeah, yeah. In fact, after the movie, after the movie opened, I mean, not, I mean, the day after it opened, Rod contacted Arthur Jacobs about sequel ideas, and Rod pitched some sequel ideas to him, and and wrote a few outlines uh, about sequels that you know may have may have worked, but um, but they ended up going in a different direction. So you know, he was very happy about about the way it came out, and very happy with the, how how big a hit it was. Obviously. Well, certainly when you think of Planet of the Apes, you think of the ending with the Statue of Liberty. And uh, that, uh, as I recall in the book, uh, Taylor does make it back to Earth in the book and he arrives in Washington and it's entirely apes. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Speaking, I'm sure that would have been much too expensive for Arthur P. Jacobs, so they came up with the Statue of Liberty, which is pure Serling. I mean, the whole concept was pure Serling. That's obviously one scene that Wilson didn't have to rewrite. Yeah, well, well, yeah, like I, like I said, he he, yeah, the, the, the ending was Rod's, and, and the idea that anybody thought that ending, that ending was not Rod's is, is still amazing to me. But yeah, no, Rod, that was Rod's ending from the early drafts. That was the, one of the endings that he and Arthur Jacobs both came up with. And uh, and even like I said, when when even the stuff that Michael Wilson rewrote, he he kept the the you know what happened. It was just the, what people said to each other was 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 different. He changed it, you know, rewrote the dialogue, but uh, but what happened, it was the same. And that yeah, the ending the ending was all Rod. 
Very, very cool. Um, was there any uh, opportunity for him to work on the sequels? Because he does not work on the sequels. No, but uh, he, no, they, they, well, there was an opportunity for sure because he did pitch a couple of ideas and, um, and, and, and uh, Arthur Jacobs was, Jacobs was not th thrilled with them. Um, and, and even Rod, when he wrote back, you know, this is all, you know, correspondence that I was able to review when he wrote back to Jacobs, he said, you know, I'm not thrilled with it either. You know, I, I agree with you. It's not, you know, this wasn't the greatest, uh, the greatest idea, but um, so he had the, had the chance, but then you know, basically he got busy with other things and it just didn't happen. But, you know, interestingly, from the Planet of the Apes perspective, the, the strange thing that ended up happening was Rod actually ended up becoming involved with the television series. You know, when Planet of the Apes became a television series, Rod wrote, um, essentially wrote the Bible for that, that series. He wrote, you know, the, basically the outline of what the series would be, you know, in terms of the, the, the two astronauts being chased by these, by these apes and and uh, and he wrote two scripts for the show that weren't produced again that weren't produced but but um but he basically gave that show a lot of the structure that that it followed um, so he had a, a very very long relationship with Planet of the Apes from the first movie all the way into the television series. Got it, got it. Um, interestingly, uh, about five years ago, I was doing an article for Cinema uh, Cine Retro um, magazine. And I was doing a retrospective article on the making of the Bridget Remagen, which was the World War II movie that came out the year after Planet of the Apes. And um, the, the USC library literally had all the different drafts of Bridget Remagen. And whose name should I find on one of the drafts? Rod Serling. Yeah, he wrote several drafts of, of that script, yeah. Yeah. He was getting rewrite jobs as well as original jobs all the time. Um, but after Planet of the Apes, there's not much to talk about feature-wise that got made, is there? No. I mean, after Planet of the Apes, uh, he went into Night Gallery, you know, so he, he did the, the he, you know, the Night Gallery pilot movie. Uh, Rod originally wrote it. I mean, well, he originally wrote it as a as prose. It was you know they were they were short stories or novellas really. Um, but when he wrote it as a screenplay, he was not sure whether it would be a feature screenplay or, or a television screen. You know, he wasn't sure how where it would go. And he did shop that, or his agents shopped it to 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 majors to to be a, a feature film, and it, it ended up being a television uh, you know movie. So so it was one of the one of the early you know made for television movies, the Night Gallery pilot movie, and um, and then after that you know he did the series so so yeah so he was once again wrote back into television and and that's it kind of the rest is history what was what was that pilot episode about well the pilot uh the pilot of the of night gallery was a was a combination of three different stories it was um it was one story called the cemetery with roddy mcdowell about uh a, you know an old man who you know a, a nephew who's trying to get his old old his uh, uncle's inheritance and ends up you know killing him for the inheritance and then is you know haunted by the uh you know by the you know coming back from the dead um there was an episode directed by steven spielberg it was his first uh you know professional directing uh, job uh, it was called eyes with joan crawford about a woman who buys somebody's eyes a blind woman who buys somebody's eyes for a transplant operation uh, tom bosley and and joan crawford um, and the third episode was with Richard Kiley called The Escape Route, which is probably the best of the three about a uh, Nazi war criminal who's hiding in Argentina 
and ends up escaping into a painting in in a in a museum um, from the from the uh, the police you know the police who were certainly were searching for him. So it was it was a combination of three stories. Um, you know, very much I mean a precursor to you know to something like Creep Show or something like. Well, I mean it had been done before before Night Gallery also of course you know Dead of Night and things like that. But but so it was kind of an anthology um, feature film or you know TV TV movie anyway. Well, I, I think I think of Rod Serling as the king of anthology, and I. I was shocked to find out that when he was making The Twilight Zone, um, James Aubrey, the head of CBS, did not like anthology. He felt anthology, and he was responsible for canceling Playhouse 90. He didn't feel that the American public wanted to see different stories each week. He felt that they wanted to see Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. They wanted to see Elliot Ness in you know, um, The Untouchables. They wanted to see Lucille Ball. Even Alfred Hitchcock, uh, you know, they, they wanted to see Alfred Hitchcock. I guess one of the primary motivations for Rod to come onto a show each week when he was doing The Zone was they wanted somebody familiar each week. Oh, yeah, that was definitely part of it. And, and James Aubrey, you know, James Aubrey wasn't necessarily wrong about that. I mean, that, that is, you know, what people do want. But I think what the case that Rod would make and what I would say is that, you know, there could be room for both. Why can't there be anthologies and continuing characters? You know, there, there's, there's certainly room for room for 90 minute anthology, 90 minute anthology series, as well as Green Acres and, and Beverly Hillbillies and, and all that. And James Aubrey uh, does go down as a villain in, in you know, in Twilight's own history and really in, in and really in CBS's history, to be honest. I mean, he, he, he is credited with the, really the dumbing down of, of television and to a large extent with shows like Beverly Hillbillies and, and uh, you know, Green Acres and things like that. It was just, um, you know, that was his idea. Yeah, that was his, his thinking was that this is what the people want. I'm going give to them, give them what they want in droves. And, and he did. He's also the guy who sold off all the MGM back lots, which to mm. this day, if they had still been there, they would have outdone the Universal tour in spades, but obviously it's all gone. Um, I remember seeing the movie, uh, let me get it straight. Um, it actually takes, it's, it's a, another version of Phantom of, the Par of Phantom of the Opera, which all takes place on the MGM lot as it's being destroyed. <laughs> and huh. I can't, yeah, I is can't, it, yeah. Is it Phantom of the Paradise? It's fan. The, it's not Phantom of the Paradise, but it's it's like that. Um, it might be called the Phantom of Hollywood because it's basically takes place on the lot as it's being bulldozed, and it's kind of an interesting look at the last remaining vestiges of one of the great movie lots in history. So after um, after Planet of the Apes, I mean, I know that he goes on, but I was it is that wasn't it a TV movie? Does he? He writes the man for James Earl Jones as the first black president. Isn't that true? Yeah, I was I was going to mention that. Yeah, th this is an interesting one because he, he wrote it for television. It was supposed to be another made for TV movie. And it was and I mean, and the man, I didn't read the novel, uh, the novel, the man, but but it is by Irving Wallace. But it's a big book. And 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 to, to narrow that down to a 90 minute television movie took some doing and and rod was able to do it he was able to streamline it and give it you know give it the structure that uh, it would need for television and you know what happened was that that same you know 1968 you know it was a political year it was, it was an election year and and the candidate with robert redford uh had been released and it got great reviews and done well and 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 paramount said you know why don't we re release this the man theatrically why don't you know and 
everybody involved with the man did not want to release it theatrically. They all felt from James Earl Jones to the, to, to Rod, to everybody, they all said, you know, this was made for TV. It really uh, has the scope of television. It has almost the, the commercial breaks are kind of built into it. It just doesn't, it's not a, a feature film and nobody listened. They, they, they released it theatrically and it got terrible reviews, really terrible reviews. And this is one I got to tell you, I like the man. I think it's, I think it's a very good movie. I, I, you know, I, I, James Earl Jones is terrific in it and it has a slew of Twilight Zone uh, faces in it, you know, from Burgess Meredith to, um, you know, James, uh, not James Daly, but, um, uh, from walking uh, from uh, tw- from stop at willoughby uh, you know the actors better than i do but there are a bunch of different twilight zone actors in, in this movie and, well, and that uh, was, I, was that 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 was james daly stop at willoughby oh, oh, oh it was james daly okay i did have that right okay but um <laughs> but yeah so they released it theatrically um and it got and it bombed and it's one of the again one of the ones that rod always talk you know talked bad about said you know he his famous quote about that one was he said what the man taught me was I don't write particularly well about people who go to the bathroom. And when, you turn, when, you, and when you're writing about a king or a president, they don't go to the bathroom. You have to write about regular people. And I, to some extent, I, I disagree with him. I, again, I, I think that's actually a pretty, a pretty good movie, a very good movie, really. Um, it's, worth, it's worth seeking out for sure. Well, speaking of Rod's uh, weaknesses, there is something to be said that he wasn't great writing women that he was kind of a man's writer. And if you think about the output of The Twilight Zone, particularly the, the episodes where a woman is involved, there are not a lot of good ones. I mean, you mentioned The Hitchhiker with Inger Stevens, which was a wonderful episode. That's one of the few. And the other one, I would say the, um, the episode with Anne Francis uh, in the department store. Yeah. Uh, After Hours, yeah. After Hours was really good. And the one with uh, the one about the painter uh, uh, painting in New York City as Earth is moving towards the sun. I thought yeah. that was. Yeah, Lois Nettleton. Yeah, that's a strong female character in the Midnight Sun. Yes. Yeah. He, yeah, general, you know, he, yeah, yeah, generally you're right. But listen, Rod Serling to me is the, if you're going to aspire to be a writer today, what, what better influence? I mean, the thing with Rod is that he, of all things, I think he taught us as writers that our imagination is sky's the limit. Don't limit yourself about what you write. Use your imagination, come up with the most, most outrageous stories you can because people don't want to see just the same thing all over again. And uh, plus he had this terrific moral compass that influenced all of his writing, that in addition to the pure entertainment vehicles like Planet of the Apes, although Planet of the Apes obviously has a subcurrent all about racism as a a way of dealing with it uh, from a science fiction point of view. uh, He he just, his moral compass was beyond question. I would, I would, I would, (laughs) I would wonder what Rod would do today, looking at the the credible, you know, the polarization of America today and the lack of intelligence in many quadrants, I think Rod Serling would be the first person on the picket line trying to challenge people to be more intelligent because he raised the bar for everybody. Well, well said, Steve. I, I, I would agree with every word of that. You know, that's, and you know, that, that moral compass was, was evident in all of his work. It was, it was always there. It was something, and it was, 
and it was conscious. He, he, he believed that that had to be part of the work. It couldn't just be entertainment. He wanted to entertain people, but it also had to be about something that, about something, about something that he believed in, about something he wanted to say. The plot could be very entertaining, and he would build that plot around, around that theme that he wanted to make a point about, but that point was there. It was, it was always there in, in everything he ever wrote. One of the stories he always wanted to tell because it affected him so emotionally was the story of Emmett Till. Uh, and I, one of the sources said, I think even Rod said this, that he was told by a network executive that we could tell this story, but you've got to make him a Mexican. And Rod was so outraged by that. I think that's part of the reason he had to leave live television in New York and come out to L.A., and start making uh, film dramas. Uh, it's ironic that today they're now making the Emmett Till story. In fact, I think they're doing a couple different Emmett Till stories. Of course, the world now has completely changed and the gloves are off. There's no subject that is taboo anymore to write about. And I think we all owe Rod uh, in terms of like that moral compass. Writers today have that compass and they're attacking issues left and right. Rod, absolutely. We owe uh, every writer that writes today owes Rod a debt of gratitude for for at least trying to break down some of those doors, and some of them he did, you know. But he just for giving, just for putting up the fight and to try to break down these these these, these taboos, and, and especially on television, it was that was Rod's. Uh, he believed that television had a duty. I mean, it sounds may may sound you know silly or whatever it may be, but he believed television. If you're going to reach that many people, if you're going to be in that many living rooms millions and millions of people, then you have a duty to tell these, to educate these people to, to, in, what, in whatever subject you were talking about. Again, he believed in entertainment, but he also believed that you had a duty to, to think of your audience as citizens. And he said that explicitly. Uh, so that was, you know, yeah, the Emmett Till story was one he would have loved to have been able to tell, but he just could not tell it on, on television. So Nick, I, I have to ask you about this musical you're working on. I, the, I, I love musicals. I love musical theater. I'm curious what approach you're taking. This is uh, something I'm incredibly proud of. I, I, I don't even mind saying saying that. It's just it's um, it's an original story that's inspired by not not just the Twilight Zone, but a, a bunch of different things in Rod's uh, catalog. Um, it's uh, it's the music is it runs the gamut from you know rock to ballads to to jazz to you know it's it's across the board, and um, it's inspired by it is inspired by a couple of Twilight Zone episodes, but also by something like uh, the Stripe, which Rod Serling wrote for the Studio One. It's a war story, um, patterns, uh, it, it, you know, part you know. Themes of patterns are in are in this, and it's it's um I'm recording the recording the music right now. The book is done. the The lyrics are done. The music is being recorded now. I have a female vocalist coming in next week to lay down her tracks, and and uh, I'm hoping that I'll have this thing completely done as far as in terms of a demo. You know, music the demos of all the songs uh, before Serling Fest, which is in this August in, in Binghamton, and and uh, I, I you know I I really I I love the way it's going i hope it turns out the way i think it should turn out and then we'll see as soon as it's done i mean i'm just gonna you know shop this thing everywhere and hope that somebody bites are you working at all with the daughters i um well i speak to them all the time uh and i have i have uh mentioned it to ann serling and I need to talk to her again because it's been a while. I, I, this is something I've been working on for quite a while. And I, I, I did run an early draft by her 
and she liked it. Um, but I need to run another draft by her because it's been quite a while since then. So, so yeah, but I will be working them with, with them as soon as the, you know, as soon as the music, the music is done for, for certain. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, you know, uh, we need, uh, well, and uh, is there comedy elements or is it a drama? No, it's a, it's a drama. There's very, uh, very little comedy in it. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, uh, I can, what I can tell you about it is that it's, it's some it's somewhat biographical of Serling, but only in terms of I mean it's it's inspired by the most most autobiographical work that he did, if that makes any sense. I mean, like in for example, I mean Walking Distance. I think from Twilight Zone the episode Walking Distance uh, is a very autobiographical story that that Serling wrote. Well, this play is this this musical is inspired certainly by Walking Distance. So if the if Walking Distance was autobiographical to Serling, then this is kind of biographical of Serling. So it's 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 wrapping up all of those aspects into a into a musical. Oh, well, I, I wish you all the success with it. Um, I'm also working on a musical as well. So wow. we're kids once again. Tell us a little bit about uh, the, the event that's taking place in August. Yeah, it's it's Serling Fest 2022. And uh, if anybody needs information, you can go to serlingfest2022.com. It's this is going to be our sixth annual uh, event. Uh, Steve, you were there a couple of years ago, and and we miss you. We've missed you these past couple of years. Um, this year, our you know guest of honor, Ann Serling, will be back. Uh, she's been at every one. Uh, Mark Sickery will be there this year, and it's a gathering of Serling experts, Serling aficionados, Serling historians. It's the biggest, you know, you're never going to find more knowledge of the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling in one room than you will at this. At this. So it's August 12th, 13th, and 14th in Binghamton, New York. Binghamton was Rod Serling's hometown and he loved it. And um, the main event is going to be August 13th, the Saturday at the Forum Theater, which is a beautiful theater. Steve, you were there um, in Binghamton. Uh, it's an all day event where we, where we do screenings, we do readings, we do uh, fun stuff like, you know, I do Twilight Zone Jeopardy. We do, um, you know, we have uh, author signings. So it's, it's, you know, it's a really great event and it's a great fundraiser for the foundation, uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, rodserling.com is the, is the website. And we are working towards uh, a bunch of different things. But one thing we're working towards is getting a statue of Rod Serling erected in Recreation Park in Binghamton. And we got some good news on that just recently. I, I can't you know, say exactly what it is, but I can tell you that I think the funding for it is absolutely going to happen. The statue most likely will be in that park sometime next year. And Serling Fest will help us uh, go a long way towards, uh, towards funding uh, the, rest of the, the rest of the statue. Well, you, you've always been an enthusiastic supporter of that world, and I'm so happy for your book. For those of you listening, Nick, Nicholas's book is called Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Where can they pick up a copy of that? Is it available on Amazon? Absolutely. Amazon, Barnes Noble, pretty much, yeah, anywhere books are sold, as, as they say. But yeah, certainly on Amazon, absolutely. Fabulous. Well, We've had a great time with you tonight, Nick. Thanks for staying up late. We really appreciate that. Uh, uh, listeners, I appreciate it. So, so great to talk to you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Everybody, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies, uh, my podcast. This is Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Uh, we try to bring you something fun every week in the movie sphere tonight. We've been talking about Rod on the big screen. Next week, we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of the movie Poltergeist. And we're going to have Joe Beth Williams, who played the mom, Diana Freeling, 
in that original uh, in that original movie. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of fun with that. But this is Steve Rubin. Have a great time here. It's always Saturday night. Good night.